0: Welcome to the Oral Tradition Show on WCRX-FM. I'm Erin McCarthy, Associate Professor of History at Columbia College, Chicago. In this episode, five students from the Department of Communications 2019 Oral Traditions class will present stories crossing cultures and generations to share and preserve. This is Oral Traditions. Mikey Bibb's grandmother, Helen, was one of the founding members of the classic Chicago gospel group, the Joy Lights. In this piece, Helen describes what it was like to travel across North America as a gospel group in the 70s and the 80s, and the time she felt the most pride in what she was doing.
1: There were five young women from the south side of Chicago with a goal of doing what they love singing for God. Before they knew it, these ladies would come to fame in the Chicago gospel scene.
2: The more we performed, um, the more we got invited to sing all over the city. And by the mid-80s, we had become the number one female group in the city, which was really a big deal for us. We were Hmm. not really full of ourselves. We still remained humble, but that was a big deal to us um in 1990 we um we were invited to perform on the Trilo stage which is the main stage for the Chicago Gospel Fest oh my god we we were so excited my sister Dorothy she was our um uniform person she immediately wanted to go shopping cuz we had to be decked for that day
1: my grandma and my aunts were not the only members of my family in the Joylights. One of the highlights of their shows was the guitarist that just happened to be my very adolescent father, who was in the group from the time he was three years old up until he was in high school.
2: Your dad was, um, was three when he, when he was one of the original members of the group. And he let everybody know he was a member of the group. Oh my God, when he hit the stage, people were standing up to see him because he was so little. And his guitar was bigger than him. And he would be up there, and I mean, he'd be getting down. He'd be all into it. And he would come, and oh my goodness, we would be singing. And he would come out in front of us and go down the aisle and play his guitar and Everybody was be we we thought people were screaming at us, and they were screaming at him and there and after it was over, oh my God, did you see that little boy? Did you see her and 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 as I said, he was always dressed to kill um you know he's always been one to dress to impress, so he had no problem um putting his suit on and his tie and and I, and as I said, right out in front of us. And he wanted a uniform every time we got a uniform, which was no big deal because, as I say again, he was a member of the group, although he didn't put anything in the group. His mom had to put it in form, okay? But um, by the time that we had um, that we were invited to go to the Taste of Chicago, you know, he was a young man by then. And he had told all his friends at school, and it was so many people out there. We couldn't even see. It was people for as far as you can see. So you, and and the stage is so, you're so far away from your audience, you can't really see faces. Although maybe my eyesight just wasn't that good, but as I said, I couldn't really see anybody, but to, to, to per se, Know who was in the audience, but um, after it was over, he had his own little uh, entourage that followed him around and his friends from school. So he had, that was quite an experience for him.
1: My grandma is a performer. At family gatherings, she's the center of attention. She doesn't seek it, but it is just a part of her personality. So when she told me that she performed in front of 10,000 people, didn't come as that much of a shock to me. What was it like being on stage there, the, that big crowd?
2: Being on stage. Yeah,
1: once you got on stage, that's probably the biggest crowd you ever oh, performed in front of I was right? scared
2: to death. I think we all were. <laughs> I think we were all very nervous. Our nerves, we always pray before our performance. And uh, musicians go out first. And um, then they would introduce us and bring us on the joy lights you know mm-hmm. of chicago illinois and the joy and the musicians started playing and then we came out and it's so crazy when you when you perform you you pretty much get that scary feeling pretty much on your when you're singing to 10 people or when you sing into ten thousand people it's still that same nervousness um but when you say that first sentence of that song, you're all good mm-hmm. you're you're there, you know, and you're focused on your audience, and you're gonna do everything you can to pull them in and we did our thing, and I think we held our own with the professionals, so mm-hmm. so it was a big deal yeah and
1: Was your guys like on stage dynamic?
2: Um, Well, we all had um, the I sang lead, and the girl Valerie, one of the other girls, sang Mm. lead. Uh, And my sister Ann pretty much kept the background together. Um, And she, the the guys, pretty much know the lineup when we hit the floor. So it's your it's your job. Brother, you're leading, or if it's Valerie, and Valerie became a minister, so Valerie could hold her own, mm-hmm. and she could hold, um, she could hold the, she had the people eating out of her hand. I mean, and and Valerie was kind of heavy. Well, no, uh, you know what I'm being nice. Valerie was full thinking <laughs> and. My sister, oh, Ann used to get so mad at her, but it was what she called uh, coming down to the people's level because she would, I don't care if we had on a $500 outfit and Valerie had on, she was coming out of those shoes. And that (laughs) used to, oh my God, that drove Ann crazy. But she would take those shoes off, and it was, and those people would just go crazy. But Valerie passed away. Um, it's been three years now. Valerie passed away three years ago. So outside of out of, out of the Joy Lights, I'm it. I'm left. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm the only one left.
1: So, how are you guys? Uh, how did the Toronto performance come in fruition?
2: The same lady. Um, that booked us on the Gospel Fest of Chicago was affiliated with the committee that booked the Gospel Fest other places. And the 150th year birthday of Toronto was a big deal. And they wanted a female group. Mm -hmm. And she said, I got the female group for you and she called my sister Ann. Oh my goodness, when Ann called everybody and told us we were going to Toronto that and and it was so crazy how um how excited we got is it, it um I don't think every time we had a big deal, Dorothy's big my sister Dorothy her big deal was it's time to go shopping. <laughs> we got to get another uniform. So, um I remember telling Chris when he came home from school uh, about us going to Toronto and he was so excited Um, because we'd never been to Canada before. Um, We'd been to Windsor, which is right on the other side of Detroit, which was not a big deal. I mean, we went to visit, but to go to Toronto to sing for the 150th birthday. And we were the only gospel act on the program they had, uh, we performed right behind Guns N' Roses. Well, Guns N' Roses is a big um, rock group. It was a big rock group back in the day. Um, so, for us to perform at that big, and, and this um, venue was actually larger Than the venue at Grant Park at the Petrillo stage for the gospel fest in Chicago, Mm -hmm. it was twice that size, maybe even three times because, um, I forgot how many they, um, how many people they had predicted. And they said that it went above and beyond how many people they thought it was. And it was in the thousands and we performed three days. And the first day, it was really, really good. We did well. The second day, people had been the day before because it was a free festival. And they had they had told other people that we were there. And they thought it was healing in our singing. And they actually bought people that were in wheelchairs. I kid you not, on beds. And rolled them out there in the front of where we were singing. And Valerie, the minister mm-hmm. that was in our group, she came down and she prayed over them. And I mean, it was we had church after performing after the <laughs> guns and roses performed, mm-hmm. and it was other people, as I said, and we were the only gospel acts, but we it was it was really crazy as we were performing to look around and like look to the side of the stage to see them standing there watching us sing some little Mm -hmm. old girls from chicago illinois okay that was a big deal Mm
1: -hmm. yeah you have a show or a best memory of being in the group
2: I would probably have to say Gospel Fest, Chicago Gospel Fest, because it was different. It was, um I think, what made it special is we were home, opposed to Toronto.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Huh?
1: And that's special for being home. Huh? Yeah, so that was it a big better. deal
2: singing with our peers, uh, I mean, should I say, singing to our peers and we're on this big stage and our peers have come to see us perform. That was a big deal.
1: Everyone has had a moment of great pride. The tricky part is not forgetting these moments. We are always moving forward in life, but that doesn't mean we can't look back at the past every once in a while. Let these moments stick with you and when life is beating you down, let its memory fuel you to work back to your former glory. This was my first time hearing the full story of the Joylights, even though I have known about the group's existence for a long time. I learned a lot about my grandma from this story, but I learned even more from her emotions while telling it. You could tell how proud she was of herself when she relived these moments. I told her after the interview that I would love to hear more stories like this from her past. I know that made her happy.
0: The past can be hard to deal with, but it's necessary to remember. In this story, titled Survival in the City, Gabriella Banducci and her mother discuss what it's like being forced to do the wrong thing for the right reasons.
3: Thou shalt not steal, a rule created by the Church to establish the belief that theft is both a sin and an ethical wrongdoing. But what happens when you have nothing? What happens when your only way to survive is to go against this rule? In this interview, I will be talking to Janine Banducci, my mother, a woman who time and time again was forced to go against this rule in order to get by. This is survival in the city. Thou shalt not steal. How much do you agree with this statement?
4: I agree with this statement as a religious practice, but on a personal level as someone who was forced into poverty and extremely difficult circumstances at a very young age. I truly believe that there are areas of gray with respect to stealing and that everyone's personal situation is different. The choices people make to steal are their own, but for my situation, I was forced to make the decision to steal so early in life just to survive when I should have been playing with toys instead of stealing to help my family eat.
3: At what age did you begin stealing and what circumstances
4: led up to that happening? I was the fifth born child in a family of seven. My mother was first generation Polish-American. She was the 15th born child to her parents. My dad an a American Indian also came from a very large family with four brothers and three sisters. When my parents met in her hometown of Milwaukee at the age of 18, my dad was in the Navy and her parents did not approve of the relationship when she told them that they had gotten married. But afterwards, they moved to Chicago to live with his parents he got a good job and then she learned she was pregnant with her first child. Well the years went by and they had 4 kids and my dad began drinking after work pretty much on a daily basis. They were now raising 5 kids ages nine, eight, six, five, and 3. And to make matters worse, my 8 year old brother was diagnosed as mentally handicapped and would only reach the maturity level of a 3 or 4 year old child. Unfortunately, my mom wasn't a strong woman, and we all were forced to put up with my father's drunken verbal abuse. He never physically abused her, but they'd argue constantly because he practically lost all of his paycheck every Friday night after work at the bar. She would physically have to force him to come home from the bar every weekend and always with little money in his pocket left over to feed the kids. Of course, he was fired for missing work because he was frequently too intoxicated or hungover and incapable of functioning at his job. So after he got fired, he cashed in his pension fund and blew it all on his addiction, leaving his family broke and hungry. Needless to say, my family was struggling because of my father's alcoholism, his ability to keep a job, and at times there was no food, and we missed meals daily. I can tell you how fast you grow up when these things, things happen to you at three and four years old. Of course, my family was in serious trouble, so two of my other siblings and I were forced to resort to shoplifting to support our family. My brother was eight, my sister was six, and I was five.
3: Can you tell me about a time
4: when you and your siblings would all go out together and steal things? My eight year old brother had a friend named Larry who was 11 and had a way for us to make some money. So the three of us would go around the neighborhood digging through garbage cans, et cetera, to get two pop bottles each and then take them to the corner store to get the 20 cent deposit per person. We would then get on the CTA bus for 10 cents to go down Cicero Avenue about 10 miles away from home and go to a well-known department store and wait for it to open. And when it did, we proceeded to steal as much jewelry as we could carry. We did this every Saturday and Sunday for approximately a year and never got caught because we were amazingly good at it. We devised a plan to distract the clerk whom we had befriended by being so nice to her and telling her how beautiful she looked. She asked why we came in every other weekend and we told her that we came to see her. The store even had cameras and we still weren't caught because we had cut out the linings in our coats inside pockets. We would walk around with our hands in our pockets and put the coats over the jewelry and grab it from the inside and throw it into the back of the coat. Who would suspect an eight, six, and five-year-old of stealing thousands of dollars of jewelry? What would you do with the stolen items? When we'd get back home with the jewelry, we'd meet up with Larry, who'd count the pieces each of us had stolen and would give us a dollar per item. He'd then sell it all to a madam, who then sold it to her prostitutes.
3: Through all the stories that you've shared with Nina and I as you were growing up about your upbringing, is it safe to say that stealing as a means of survival was a common practice for you and your family growing up?
4: For my siblings, the cycle of theft continued due to my parents' inability to provide for their kids. For me, after the first year of thieving at five years old, I had the incredible luck of befriending a Jamaican couple, Edith and Dutch, who became like parents to me almost immediately. And I became like the daughter they never had. I'd stay at their home frequently. and Edith taught me how to read and write before kindergarten. With my mom's permission, I did come to stay with them full time and received respect, morals, discipline, love, kindness, honesty, something I couldn't get at home. Obviously, I knew it was wrong to steal, and I told them all about what I did. Something I couldn't do with my real parents because my father would not only have beaten me, but my other siblings as well. They took me to church regularly and told me to ask God for forgiveness and made me promise that I'd never steal again. My brother, my partner in crime when we were younger, continued to do what he did best and that was to steal. He graduated to breaking and entering homes and cars for money and did not want to work. Also, he started drinking heavily, basically perpetuating the cycle he was arrested many times for loitering and consumption of alcohol in public, not to mention suspicion of theft. Both he and my older sister decide that school was a waste of time and they both quit in their junior year of high school.
3: Looking back on it now, how was this a positive or negative experience
4: and why? Being forced to be a thief can never have a positive effect, but if you're remorseful for your actions, I believe that if you can justify the action in that it was only beneficial to the survival of your family then the action itself takes on a different meaning to the thief i feel what i my siblings did was solely for survival and not done out of financial gain but nothing other than the love for our family and the ability to feed ourselves and our family let's be clear i do not condone the fact that if you're hungry just go steal but having faced the situation head on at such an early age, the need to survive took over and my siblings and I did what we felt we had to do to make it to the next day. The positiveness I experienced from the situation is that if this hadn't happened to my family, I personally would never have experienced some amazing people in the world who will try to help guide you in the right direction to turn your awful situation into a learning tool by showing you through love, patience and education You can create a better life through education, personal self-worth, and hard work. In conclusion, do you
3: believe that the unfortunate circumstances you experienced help you in the long run?
4: I do truly believe that these life experiences helped me become a stronger person who feels that if you could survive that childhood, I can get through anything. I also feel that it's helped me become a better parent and strive to ensure my children understand that the world can be really harsh But through hard work, discipline, and integrity, you can have what you need in life. Everything has a price, good or bad. You do well, the price is you're rewarded for your efforts in a positive way. And if you do badly, your price is you do not succeed. Nothing is given easily, and sometimes you have to fight for yourself when no one will. So how are you doing today? Today, I can truly say I have lived a very long life for my 52 years. At the age of four, I was well beyond my years mentally due to poverty and with that, I was forced to grow up way too soon because I had only one goal in life at that age, to survive. This life experience has made me grow, excel, and persevere through almost anything thrown my way and because of the love and kindness from strangers, I can personally say that no matter how hard it was at that time and how many times I went to bed hungry how many times I had to scrounge around through garbage cans for pop bottles, to ride the trains or buses, to go steal from stores, restaurants, and water fountains. I wouldn't change a thing because it molded me into a tough, strong-willed, determined, emotionally confident woman I am today, and I feel I have successfully sh- survived through personally and mentally trying circumstances that would have broken most people. Now I can pass this strength to my children and break the cycle of abuse I received and make them stronger individuals going into their futures. Thank you.
0: You're listening to The Oral Tradition Show on WCRX. I'm Erin McCarthy, professor for the Oral Traditions class at Columbia College Chicago. Starting your own successful business is a lot of people's dream. Angelina Perino's mom made that dream a reality. In this piece, Angelina's mom discusses the trials and tribulations of starting her own psychology practice and the personal growth resulting from it.
3: My mom always knew she wanted to be a psychologist. Over her 30-year career, her role has transformed into a calling her own life learning that has come from running her own practice and being a single parent to my brother and me, has developed her self-dependent and self-sufficient nature and has shaped her mission for her work. What were some of the initial challenges of getting started with a self-practice?
5: Just getting clients, patients. It's a word-of-mouth business. Mm -hmm. I mean, I started obviously before all the social media even existed, thank God. Mm -hmm. Um... It was just a a word of mouth and having a lot of faith and being patient. Um, And I know I told you the story of how I actually got my big first influx of patients. Because it was one of those things of, okay, yeah, I am to do this. Um, I had initially sent out all the materials, all the EAP programs, doctors, physicians, industry, everything in the area. Of course, got nothing from it. Um, I was introducing myself and then I was at an antique shop one time and, um, kept getting drawn to this hideous painting, which needed repair on the frame. And the lady said, Oh, well, I have a friend that does that. Blah, blah, blah. Long story short, I bought the painting and I didn't really want it. Her friend repaired the frame. And then when they came over, I got to know her friend who then laid, said, oh, I've got to tell my friend Jim about you, who was the head of then the EAP for the very large, like, I don't know, 15,000 employees steel mill, who I had sent things to. And out of that, boom, there was like a third to a half of my practice instantaneously. Did you deal with insecurity of just worry
3: over, am I gonna be able to have a sustainable practice financially?
5: Absolutely the insecurity It's kind of like Getting everything ready For having a birthday party And you invite your friends And hope somebody shows up But ironically And I try not I don't dwell on it Over the 30 plus years I've done this I have no job security I never have I mean if I think I have no assurance That I'm going to have Anybody coming in next month Or Mm -hmm. next Well next week I'm obviously scheduled Um, It's just a faith issue Because no I have no job security What has that taught you? Be present moment and pay attention and to not get into the fear. Um, There's been times where for whatever reason it would dip really low and I'd be like, whoa, when I'd look ahead and realize I only had a handful or a couple handfuls of people. And just as long as I didn't, you know, I'd make the best of the time and I just would reboot and focus on gratitude for everybody that's being aligned with me, that is to work with me, they're coming in perfect timing. But yeah no job security well the other thing I should add too because the whole private practice thing you have to understand when I got my doctorate is the era when managed care was insurance was first coming out and we were told in graduate school the days of private practice are done you need to work for an agency because managed care and all this nonsense let alone me in a rural area um and I just like no, that's not what I want to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. And I've never looked back. One of the biggest gifts, and I know I've told you this before, that your grandmother gave me and your aunt was her commitment when we were little girls, because she was stuck in a marriage. She had no financial means of taking care of herself, and there's no child support. That she would. I guess told different relatives, my daughters will never financially be dependent upon a man. That was her goal. And what a blessing that's turned out to be, given as we've already talked, your father, when we were married, contributed little to nothing. And then obviously after the divorce, nothing. And I would have either had to been begging, pleading, whatever to get money from him, or we would have been on welfare. But even though it was very tough at times, I was able to support us. And so yes, I will always have that gratitude of, you're with somebody because you want to be, not because you have to be. No, I still have people constantly ask me, oh my God, don't you get lonely in that big, huge house? And I'm like, no. And I'm very social, as you know. I mean, I can talk to anybody and do anything, but I'm good, I know I'm whole and complete. And that's a blessing of the person you're with too because then they know you're not with them Mm
1: -hmm.
5: because you have to be. But what I did and what most people do, and I tell my clients this, we tend to put more thought into what we want truly in buying a house or a car than in choosing a life partner. We tend to marry or stay with whoever we're with if it's good enough, when we're ready to get married. And these are all the things, by the way, you don't learn in graduate school. This is life learning.
3: Mm -hmm. I
5: use very little of what I learned in school, in my practice.
3: What was the hardest part about getting to the point in your marriage when you actually realized you no longer wanted to be with this person who you had two kids with? What did that feel like?
5: It was an absolute certainty, it was a knowing, but it was a monumental thing in terms of all the dismantling of everything that would have to be done. And then I had two young kids. You guys were two and three. Um, but there was just, it was an absolute knowing. It, just, it was just done. What did that show you and teach
3: you about yourself?
5: That I can do anything if I need to. And... I had a hundred thousand angels by my side, so to speak. At times I knew that. Mm -hmm. I also, you know, there was humility, humbleness in terms of realizing, whoa, when somebody does get so bone tired and overwhelmed, the not so best behaviors that come out. So it was compassion for, yeah, you know, before I would judge some other parent. No, I was not abusive or anything, but a lot of what I would think less than ideal Mm -hmm. responses or handling stuff. Yeah. Just because I was exhausted. I mean, I think I stepped up to a level that I was like, hey, look back at our photo albums and I'm like, good Lord. Mm -hmm. Where did I find the time and energy to do all of that? Um, That's what I say. I mean, everything. Holidays and all the magic childhood stuff and whatever, the patience, time, energy... But just then, yeah, the fatigue part of um, that I didn't have the wisdom to know no matter what still be present versus play with you for a while and then, okay, I got to change the laundry, got to do this, got to do that. I didn't have that wisdom. Because there's a saying that when it comes to raising kids, the days are really, really long and the years fly by. So you feel like you've got all the time in the world and suddenly you don't. But looking back, if my eyes were more wide open on the one hand, I should have seen all the cracks in the foundation of my marriage. But most of those cracks weren't truly apparent until I had kids. Because that's when his true childish nature was glaringly apparent. Um, but... I think, as I said before, nope, no regrets. Um, sad. You guys will never have that nuclear family experience. But this is how it was supposed to be. You were born to the parents you were supposed to be born to. I'm a big believer, no mistakes, just learning. Um, even though over the years I think there's been some people that have probably thought, well, how good can she be at marriage counseling? She's divorced. And I don't judge those people, they're just naive. It's ignorance. Um, I, still, I stand by the most intimate relationships we have or the most fertile workshops we have to learn about ourselves.
6: Mm-hmm.
5: Same thing with being a parent. It's to learn about yourself.
0: Part of the reason smell is important is it links directly to the emotional and memory centers of the brain. In this story, Beatrice Quiroz and her sister Nancy talk about the sense of their childhood and the often emotional memories they bring back.
7: Hi, I'm Beatrice Quiroz, I'm 20. I'm a communications major at Columbia College and I'm here with my sister Nancy. Hi everybody.
8: I don't know if I should address you or just an audience. I don't know, just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll keep going. Uh, yeah, I'm Nancy Kiros. Um, I am 22. I recently graduated UIC. So,
7: um, today we're going to be talking about what kind of scents, smells, and sensories. We had growing up in these memories that helped create who we are as people today. We'll jump right into it. So, Nancy, what would you say is your earliest memory? Good memory. Uh, good early memory? <sighs> and oh. what, like, what strikes you and what brings you back to that day?
8: Mmm. The thing is, my earliest memory, I can't really pinpoint... A smell necessarily. It's more of a touch. It was uh, the fact that it, like, I don't think you even remember this, but we, I first, we first lived in a small apartment up north, and essentially, I wanted to fill the whole living room with water because I wanted to like, submerge it and be in a pool, and I thought if I ran all the water enough, like we would have enough water to swim in. Obviously, that's not how any of that works. But, and I just remember, like, feeling all, like, the wet wooden floors. And those floors were definitely not, like, sealed or anything. So, it really, that, it was just bad. And, yeah, I just remember mommy, like, telling us to get the rags. Because I think I was, like, five and you were, like, three And just, yeah, just doing that.
7: Yeah, I've heard stories. I know mom has said, like, yo yo las hice hacer limpiar todo y nomás hicieron un desastre. Which translates to that we just made a big disaster and that. I mean, we were young, though. We were, I don't even remember because I can't remember any any memory. Yeah, I was (laughs) dumb, but I also. We were
8: done, not just you, but. Yeah, essentially that. But, like, another memory (laughs) was when we would go to the doctors. And, like, I personally don't like doctors because there's this, like, distinct smell. It's not bleach. Like, I think a lot of people associate hospitals with bleach. It's, like, this soap I I just don't like. And it's, like, a hand soap that, like, very generic. A lot of places have it. But essentially, um, we we're leaving, which good thing. But, like, at the same time, like, there was a... What do you call those?
7: What do you call those? Well,
8: the, the where you... It's not a door. It's
7: a... I don't know what they're called, but I know what you're talking about. The, the turnstile, whatever, the... The, revo- the revolving
8: door. Revolving doors. There you go. And essentially, uh, you're, like, five. I was seven. And... I think I was like trying to go round and round or like I was trying to run ahead of you guys and catch like the first one and I guess you were close behind me and as I was going in and you were trying to be in the same little section with me but it was too late and you were caught in between and
7: I got crushed I remember I distinctly remember. Wait but was
8: that no I think you got no I think you got it's because when Betty was Younger, she had like this uh, birthmark
7: stain on my like it, it
8: wasn't a birthmark because you weren't born with it. It was just like a scar, but like a very like let's say like a very bad uh, rug rash or what? Yeah, whatever, yeah. I mean
7: that's a nice way to put it, but
8: um, <laughs> like yeah. near your lip, and it and everyone everyone in the family would joke about that. Oh, you're eating like constantly ketchup.
7: And let's be honest, I was, because I like ketchup on my eggs, but it just faded away and I don't have it anymore. Man,
8: that's a delicacy, ketchup and scrambled eggs. Seriously. Con una
7: tortilla, and just putting some chiles y vinagre. You know, after this podcast, I think I'm going to just have to make some eggs, let's be honest. Yeah.
8: <laughs> just eggs, that's Yeah, it. just <laughs> eggs,
7: no ketchup, because I'm too old for that. But, um, yeah, no, I remember that exact distinct smell you're talking about the like the generic hand soap because I feel like growing up since our dad would bring home also like janitorial supplies from his job we've become accustomed to kind of like cleaning supplies and knowing what stuff like that smells like and not brands because everything was you know trademarked by big corporations and we would get everything in bulk but I don't think I've ever felt oh maybe this is TMI but like I don't think
8: I've ever felt like anything like two-ply Tissue paper or toilet paper on my interior. <laughs> my I
7: know. Uh, I I agree because growing up, me and you were um, you know, like I guess to put it lightly, we grew up in poverty and we know, we we know what it's like to get by with the bare minimum and we know what it's like to, you know, have ne- nombre de marca stuff, which means you know name, name brand. brand but that's also another thing that me and you were always used to so like with our with our laundry there's a distinct smell that Mexican families use with their laundry detergent that me and you have th- since then broken out of it but there's like these brands like Foca or like Suavitil or you have a pretty strong opinion about those kinds of smells right? Yeah I personally
8: do not like, that's why I earn my money to get made. Like, that's the only thing that I would argue that is worth the money. Is getting, like, tied or something that's very fragrant in the sense that I know is, like, buena marca. Because if I'm going to be wearing it constantly, like, I want to smell good. And then the fact that I'm also very sensitive with smell. Because I personally don't wear perfume. I can't wear very, like, lotions that are super perfumated I don't even like drinking sodas that are like super perfumated.
7: Like Lacroix, yeah, zero calories, but that smell, disgusting. Seriously, it smells like f- freaking Dolce Gabbana. Let's be honest. But... Not not <laughs> honest. <laughs> Honestly, we don't even know what that smells like. But
8: but it's like, I get very sensitive with smells like that. Like the CTA. Oh my god. Like like ugh, i you know at this point it's just me bashing on people who smell bad but Definitely. or what i consider smells bad because sometimes people like that perfume like that like the bath and body works like uh like i can't have a what what are how many like a dollar 30 small uh hand sanitizer that's a specific smell yeah can. I, I can't have that for more than a week cause then I just get irritated by the smell or I associate it with something
7: and that's so funny that, I mean like I'm also not very I'm not too sensitive to smell but I do you know associate many things with smells and, like, I smell something and it'll it'll take me back to, like, a day at our like, uncle's house or it'll take me back to a specific, you know, August night that me and you were out riding bikes in the back. Like, for example, the smell of iron when me and you would go to the park to play. That sp- is
8: one of the smells that literally, just talking about it, get, gives me a headache. Like, I don't get headaches from homework. I don't get headaches from, like, I don't know, just doing stuff i guess yeah. but certain smells like that iron smell gets me so i don't know how to explain it like when you're swinging on the swing set on a summer night and there's wood chips on the floor and then all of a sudden you're like oh let me smell my hand after you s- s- swung on that and maybe we're set? just
7: weird like that that we smell our hands but i don't know
8: it's just i can't I can't, or sometimes, like, after touching, like, a brass door, it gives me the same sense, like, the same smell, and I hate it.
7: (sighs) And I feel like, um, we also grew up in an environment where our parents worked pretty often, so we knew the smell of, you know, a long-day worker. Like, have you ever heard when people say, like, oh, you smell like outside? And that's something that me and my sister and now my brother are used to, because we see, we, we know... What because my dad used to work in um selling like um scrap metal and you know, I don't know, being come coming home covered in like I guess grease, and I would say it's just like dust, like just everyday, like
8: wood, dirt, metal, like dust, like my. I would say mostly childhood like since we moved into the blue house like the last house we were in it's like construction so constantly smelling wood constantly smelling paint like it kind of definitely like that's something that i actually cherish because going into menards is like going to going home.
7: Yeah. I like agree. and it's interesting to think that like Menards was the second home to us because we would be going constantly out constantly going there. going there when we were younger like he'd be like, "Oh, you guys go ahead and play." And we would
8: <laughs> walk around. I remember <laughs> I don't know which Menards. I think it was somewhere in Lagrange. I don't even know, but we were in the second floor of the Menards and I remember getting <laughs> we were like look at the vending machines constantly. <laughs> <laughs> image let's be honest (laughs) because we're like damn (laughs) like damn i don't i don't now that i'm thinking about it was that an employee? it probably was but
7: we were there so often we were practical employees anyway um yeah thank you and till the next time you guys
0: In our final segment of the show, Ricky Panita interviews a good friend and fellow New Orleans native about her experience losing her home and herself to Hurricane Katrina.
9: Everyone has their own story to tell from Katrina. Yeah. What's yours?
6: So, I like I said, I was in second grade, and, you know, that's pretty young, but That whole year, because of Katrina and all just the stuff that me and my family went through, is the most vivid year of my life. I remember it so clearly, even though I was so young. And it basically started off by we had only been in school for maybe a week or two. And then just the news started rolling in about this hurricane. And people were deciding whether to evacuate or not. And me and my family we had just moved into our dream house. We, were, we'd only, we hadn't even lived there a year actually. And we, I just remember we had to pack up and just evacuate to somewhere, not knowing if we would be coming back to live in that house because the hurricane ended up getting worse and worse every single day. So yeah, that's, that's how the story started. We stayed in Texas for a few days but we were just staying in a hotel Then eventually we just moved on to Orlando because my dad decided he had to get a job if we were going to stay there. And at this point, I did not know why we were staying in Orlando. Like I said, I was in second grade. My parents weren't really telling me everything. And it wasn't until we lived in Orlando for about six months that I found out we had completely lost our house. It had completely flooded. Just it was there was no house left. And I didn't find that out until a while later. And so we lived in Orlando for a little over a year. Finally, one day, my dad gets a call from his old boss in New Orleans and gets an offer to move back, but we did not have a house. So me, my two sisters, my mom, my dad, all moved into my grandparents' house, and all of us lived there for about a year before we found our own house.
9: Wow. What was that like? Were your friends still around...
6: A lot of them had only evacuated temporarily. Some people I know, like us, did lose their house, but some of them just immediately moved back into the city. They were only gone while the hurricane was passing through, and the ones that ended up just coming back immediately, either their houses were still standing or they were living in motorhomes in New Orleans. And so since I came back kind of late, it was like, I did not know any of these people anymore. I mean, I was only in third grade. A lot can change between that year when you're so young, but these were people I knew since I was two. These were all of my friends. And suddenly I get back and they have different jokes. They, have, they went through different things. They got all the experiences that ended up happening, all the fun dances and all the little plays that happened in second grade that I missed out on. And then on top of that, since I wasn't in New Orleans for the whole aftermath of Katrina, a lot of them were just saying like, well, you didn't go through Katrina like we did because I was gone for it. So I come back and I'm told that my whole year that had just been totally screwed up was nothing because I wasn't in New Orleans. So it was just like a culture shock to come back.
9: Okay. Now, um, do you remember how you dealt with this? Did you go to your parents?
6: Um... I, I think that since I was so young, it was more of the thing that my parents took action first because, I mean, when you're little, like, it's not the kind of thing where you go up to them and you're like, hey, I think I have depression or anything. They, they did, they did pick up on that. I, I actually do have to give them that because once we started moving back, they did have me start seeing a therapist. My sisters had fairly easy transitions since they loved Orlando and they equally loved New Orleans. They were just happy to be back. They didn't seem to be having any problems with their friends. They were both at the age where my little sister, her friends, they were all still too young to care about the fact she was gone. My older sister, they were all just like thinking that they're cool teenagers and that they were finally all back together. So my parents noticed that there was a change in me and they started sending me to therapy for the first time and i still didn't fully understand what it was but i just remember knowing that it was it was them trying to help me but a therapist can't give you the validation that your friends can at that age when that's so important did you ever find an outlet i mean the anticlimactic answer is no <laughs> not for a long time i i mean for a long time it just felt like I did not have a personality when I look back at like fourth grade fifth grade sixth grade all of middle school I do not remember having a distinct personality I was just I was just like the little sheepdog that followed around my friends I did whatever they told me to I was just their follower because I lost their acceptance and I was just seeking it again so all of middle school I really did not have my own personality it wasn't until high school that I started feeling like my own person again, when I was just out of that group and out of that environment.
9: Okay, and do you feel that getting back into your old hobbies could have helped you move on?
6: I think that they could have. I mean, they they definitely, my parents did try to push a lot of that stuff on me, but none of them lasted. Like, they did try to get me to play sports, but I didn't like it anymore. That was why it didn't last. That's why I couldn't even consider it an outlet. I I didn't stick with it. I didn't make any of the teams because I wasn't trying. I They had me try to run for student council. I didn't care enough, so I didn't run a good campaign, so I didn't get it. And so I definitely put toward, or my parents definitely had me put towards effort, but it was just like I was going through the motions. There was no passion. There was no excitement. There was no want for any of it. I was just kind of doing it just to do it. The only thing I really wanted to do was follow around my friends. So I don't even know how to... I'm not really sure how to answer that because even though I tried getting back into my old hobbies, they still didn't really work.
9: At some point in in high school, you said things started to change up. Mm -hmm. Um, What exactly gave you that, that push? What helped you?
6: It was just being in a different environment, genuinely, because the school that I went to before... It's a school. You start there when you're two. You leave there when you're 13. (laughs) So just like your whole life, you're there. And that was all I knew. Hanging out with that friend group, those people that meant so much to me was all I knew. That was why when I left for Katrina, it was such a culture shock. And coming back, it was such a culture shock that they didn't want me anymore. It was all I knew. And after a few years being a little more mature than when I had lived in Orlando because I was only in second grade and being a little more mature and going to a new place or high school, somehow it just clicked for me. Everything just fell back into place. I started doing things that I used to like to do. I started doing new things that I never used to like to do. Making new friends, going out of my comfort zone. It just, it all just changed somehow. I think it was just a long buildup of me not doing anything, and I suddenly just hated the fact that I wasn't doing anything. And I just started gaining a personality again. I don't wanna make it sound like I was a blob or a zombie, but that's what it felt like for a a very long time.
9: Now, do you feel that because of the events of Katrina, um, the change that happened to you, both good and bad, Do you think that you benefit from it
6: that's hard to say on one hand i'm gonna say no (laughs) not at all because it did kind of set me back so much like maybe for so many of those years in middle school i wouldn't have been such a follower if i hadn't lost that year because once you start getting into preteens and everything that those the years that are crucial and I lost one, but on the other hand, it feels almost, it feels almost arbitrary to say, yeah, something that happened when I was in second grade affected my whole life, but it did. It, it affected, to this day, I still am not as confident as I was before. I was such an outgoing kid. And I don't have that confidence as much anymore. I'm afraid to raise my hand in class to ask a question. And I'm in college, and you don't really raise hands. (laughs) But I still feel the impulse. Just I'm not willing to put myself out there as much. So while it does feel kind of silly to be like, yeah, something that happened in second grade really affected me, it kind of did because it hit me at a hard point that was really important for my future development. Good, and now... So to answer your question, it did not benefit me. That was really long. <laughs>
9: <laughs> That's perfect. Um, just one last question. Do you feel that these past traumas and incidents, do you believe that they taught you something? And if so, what could you take from it?
6: I feel, especially with Katrina... I mean, and my parents' divorce, actually, that the thing that I learned the most is just, whenever you're going through something really bad, you really just find out who is there for you. My parents could speak more on that because they found out who were their real friends because of who stuck with them and helped them financially through Katrina or who stuck with them on either side of their divorce. But even with that, in terms of me, Like, my parents both are just so there for me. I know sometimes they have a hard time. But really, those two traumas taught me that whoever is there for you truly will go through with you in the hard times. My family is my number one, my home base. And my parents could have gotten a divorce during during Katrina... And made it so much harder on me and my sisters. My parents could have had a messy divorce later on anyway. But they knew that me and my sisters were kind of all going through our own stuff. And they didn't want us to see our parents hate each other. So they did their best that they could to deal with each other. To this day, they still seem like it's very amicable. I know it's probably not. But they do that for us. And it's because they're there for us. And it's because they know that trauma affects us they they know i mean obviously they know that trauma affects anybody right. but i feel like what i'm just trying to say is <laughs> in a long-winded answer is that trauma reveals who's really there for us whether you're at a young age whether you're, whether you're going through something with friends with family it just reveals that and you have to stick with who is still there on the other side. And luckily I have such a strong family, such a strong home base, that they were still there and that they still are. So I know that I have them. No matter what I go through with school, with friends, with living on my own, with my career, with anything, my family is my home base no matter what. And it sucks that you had to learn it through trauma, but at least I know. (laughs)
0: Thank you for listening to The Oral Traditions Show. I'm Erin McCarthy, professor for the Oral Traditions Class at Columbia. The Oral Traditions Show is made possible through the collaboration of the Humanities, History, and Social Sciences Department and the Communications Department at Columbia College, Chicago. Thanks to the 2019 Oral Traditions Class and Zach Cunning, WCRX production intern, for producing this episode. Thanks again for listening to Oral Traditions on WCRX-FM.